Hello, and thank you all for joining us today. My name is Sharona Benheim, and I'm an assistant professor and functional neurosurgeon at UC San Diego. This podcast uh, today will explore a concept that has been gaining significant popularity in the past several years, which is alternative therapies for pain. Specifically, we'll be focusing on mindfulness, as well as the use of medical marijuana and its derivatives um, in uh, the treatment of chronic pain. This podcast will complete our series of podcasts on the general non-surgical management of pain, which included topics related to opioid use and prescribing with Dr. Tracy Speed from Johns Hopkins, as well as um, the general biology of pain with Dr. Mary Heinricher from OHSU. And so these three podcast series will commence with um, an interactive webinar that will include most of the faculty from these podcasts to discuss this kind of general topic of the non-surgical management of pain. This is a jointly funded um, and conceptualized project from the education committees of the North American Neuromodulation Society, um, as well as the Congress of Neurological Surgeons. So this morning, um, I'm delighted to be here with Dr. Mark Wallace, who is a professor of anesthesiology and the chief of the division of pain medicine at UC San Diego, as well as the director for the Center of Clinical Research at the Altman Clinical and Translational Research Institute, known here as the ACTRI. He is a well-known expert in the field of pain management and among many other topics, has contributed significantly to the literature surrounding the use of medical marijuana for chronic pain. Um, I'm also delighted to be here with Dr. Fidel Zaydan, who's an associate professor of anesthesiology and really an expert in the use of functional neuroimaging to identify modalities of pain processing in the brain. And his present area of research really focuses on the neuroanatomical relationship between mindfulness-based meditation and pain relief. And so Dr. Wallace, Dr. Zaydan, thank you both so much for being here with us this morning. Hey, thanks. Glad to be here. So um, so I'll start with a question um, for Dr. Wallace. You know, regarding this topic of medical marijuana, which has really become more popular, especially in the wake of the um, opioid epidemic, you know, what 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 kind of data are we looking at? What have we seen as far as the efficacy of, of using this alternative treatment modality for patients with significant chronic pain? Um, yeah, I was, I was in California in 1996 when it was legalized. And at that time, I was in favor of legalization, but I was on the fence because of lack of efficacy data. We didn't know um, what the source was going to be. How do we dose it? Uh, then it was in two, it was 1999 that California allocated a considerable amount of money for research. And that was when the Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research started here at UC San Diego. And that's when I got my first grant um, to start studying it. And so fast forward to today, the CMCR has probably been the most productive research institute for medical cannabis. And they have conducted a number of double-blinded, randomized, placebo-controlled studies most of the evidence is with neuropathic pain. There's very little evidence, and, and, and it's with THC. There's absolutely no evidence for CBD and the efficacy of CBD to treat either acute or chronic pain. I think there's, and I, I think that the CBD, there's a lot of hype around it, 
But it's not that it doesn't work. I think that the doses required would probably be cost prohibitive. But so I, now having, having said that, there's emerging evidence of, of uh, efficacy in non-neuropathic pain. So I use it for a wide range of patients um, from neuropathic to low back pain to fibromyalgia, abdominal pain. I, I've opened it, the door for a lot and I've, I've seen it to be effective. However, there's no data on that. And um, no, no, very little data on, on the using an acute pain. Um, there's also, we've done research on dosing. And the key is the, 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 the dosing range of THC goes from positive effects to very negative effects. And that dosing range is from one to 20 milligrams. Whereas CBD, the dosing range is much, much broader, going from 10 milligrams to 800 milligrams between you get different effects. So we rarely, we, we've done studies looking at plasma levels of, of THC. As you go up, as the THC levels go up, the pain goes down, but then you reach a point where it starts going in the opposite direction and you'll start worsening their pain. So it's really all about low doses of THC with actually little minimal neurocognitive effects at those doses. But the key is THC is what we're using. Start low and go slow. And that's great. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about, you know, especially based on the evidence and, and really in your um, in your pretty broad clinical experience, who is, you know, the perfect patient to consider this type of therapy? So I think it's, it, it's controversial. Where should it fit in the pain treatment continuum? And of course, a lot of patients come to me thinking that's the answer to all of their, their problems. And and I want them to try conservative therapies first. And um, as far as the pain syndrome, I can't say that I put my finger on any specific pain diagnosis that is the best for, for cannabis. And that's in my experience. So again, the research says neuropathic pain uh, is where, where the evidence sits. You know, and other than that, I don't think there's any dose, any range, uh, I'm sorry, age limitations. I've done, you know, there's this, this controversy of young people and brain development. And should we be using it in patients under the age of 25? My response is that I think the risk is very low with the doses we're using. The doses are so low that it's very, very unlikely it's going to affect any brain development. So there's no really restrict. I have 95 years old uh, using it. Um, the, of course, we do a assessment on risk, risk assessment for abuse, it is a, a potential drug of abuse. However, I think that the risk of, of abuse and dependency is quite low. And the evidence shows that even from animal studies to, you know, to, to human studies to show that addiction is low. Whereas you compare it to opioids and cocaine and, and nicotine and amphetamines, much, much higher risk of, of addiction. Nonetheless, I do risk assessments because I wanna make sure that they are not using drugs of abuse. And I make sure that they're not using an opioid. I, my, my goal is to get them off the opioids. So I tell them, when we start this, the goal is to completely get you off of the opioids. I, and I'm pretty successful with it, uh, but and there's a few that go, you know, 90% reduction in their opioids, and I let them stay there because they just can't quite get off that last one. Um, so that's a general, it's hard for me to say, okay, this is the perfect patient. Uh, it's not like opioids. Opioids are very restrictive, and we do a pretty strict assessment. That doesn't apply completely for cannabis. 
So I think I've opened the range of patients to, to, that, I, that I recommend. So I've, I've done all ages, all types of syndromes, uh, and, and uh, some that works for, for a lot of them, but it doesn't work for some of them. Great. So, um, you know, this, this can be a difficult thing to incorporate into, into someone's practice. Um, tell us a little bit about your specific practice setup um, and, and how, you know, perhaps you would advise, you know, a, a practitioner treating patients with uh, chronic pain who are interested in this type of alternative, you know, therapy, um, how you'd advise them to, to start that process. So this is probably the, one of the most difficult questions to answer. And the reason is, is because it is still scheduled to, and the, the laws vary so widely from state to state. And so all I can tell, and, and, and I would say the vast majority of protect practitioners don't know how to dose it. So when I give this recommendation, I'm saying this is how I practice it in the state of California, because California is way far ahead of the other states. So I do the medical evaluation we, as, as, as if I would do it for any pain treatment. And I do my assessment, get the diagnosis, look at past therapies. Uh, then I, I uh, kind of give them a very quick spill on cannabis and tell them that it's, it, it is complicated because there's number one, there's, there's, it's not covered by your insurance. You're going to have to pay for it. There's multiple modes of delivery that have very different effects and you need a dosing consultation. So we have a doctor of naturopathic medicine that's integrated into our clinic through the Center for Integrative Medicine that does a one-hour dosing consultation, but she takes it a step further in that she does our quality control. So she looks at the certificates of analysis because California, the Bureau of Cannabis Control mandates product testing, batch testing. So we can look at the, at the certificates of analysis to make sure what we're recommending has the content that we want it to be. It's free of contaminants. It doesn't have any pesticides. And it's, it's open to inhalation. And then we counsel them on the safe ways to vaporize it versus edibles versus oils, changing the ratios of CBD to THC from daytime to nighttime, because you wanna bump up the THC at night. Um, typical, typical ratio for the daytime is a 20 to one CBD to THC ratio as a start. That's a, a, like an oil. And you start off with 0.1 or 0.2 drop under the tongue, let it sit there for a couple of minutes and then swallow it. That's gonna give you about one milligram of THC. At night, we take it up to a one-to-one -one ratio. And then they'll take the same, same volume, that's gonna bump them up to about three or four five, or five milligrams of THC. Cause we wanna bump up the THC at night. To, and then you titate from there. Then you go to maybe 0 0.3, 0 0.4, no more than four times a day. Uh, if they start having side effects, slow down, back off. So that's the general way. And, and the concept is the same for inhalation. The ratios are the same. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a plant, it's an organic plant and you, and you do an inhalation. But we like with inhalation, we like a temperature controlled. Start at the lowest temperature because that's gonna, and then they can titrate it up from there. They start dialing up the temperature and you're gonna get more and more. And then you start titrating over there and start off with one inhalation at the lowest temperature dial it up, and then you can maybe go to two, two inhalations, three, but no more than four inhalations. So the general, that's the general idea, kind of a, and then I follow up with them and, and, and document what they're using 
in their medical records, what's the side effects, what's the effect, and then I can help take it from there and, and kind of adjust it. And then if they're on an opioid, I put them on a weaning schedule. The goal is to wean them off of the opioid. Wow, that's that's fantastic. Um, okay, so let's uh, you know that now that we've heard a little bit about kind of the role here of um, of cannabis in the treatment of chronic pain, let let's transition um, to uh, Dr. Zaydan and uh, and talk a little bit about mindfulness and its potential role in uh, in the therapy of some of these uh, patients with very difficult to treat. Um, chronic pain syndromes. You don't um, want to talk about uh, cannabis and pain more? We're doing that research too with brain <laughs> imaging with chronic pain patients with Dr. Wallace. Oh, absolutely. Currently, yeah, we're absolutely. using vaporized cannabis to actually get at these questions because the, I think what, what we're seeing is that we don't actually know the answers for who it works for, for how long the dosage and what the mechanisms are because some of these scheduling classes, we've been inhibited from doing the rigorous research. And so like Dr. Wallace was alluding, we're now in a position to potentially explicitly target these different subpopulations, these different dosages, delivery methods to actually assess how it works and if it works. So it's really an exciting time um, for these types of um, more less addictive, if you will, natural ways to, to alleviate pain. Sorry, yeah. I had to say something. It's just such an <laughs> exciting time to do this work. Absolutely, it certainly is. So let's talk a little bit about mindfulness. And then, you know, I think it would be great to sort of wrap things up and discuss some of your research on, um, on cannabis and, and really even consider some of the mechanisms of action, you know, that, that perhaps are, are uh, pervasive to both of these therapeutic modalities. So jumping to the topic of mindfulness, you know, let's just start with what, what really is mindfulness? Yeah. Mindfulness is a, uh, it's kind of a nebulous construct, but in a nutshell, it just really means to be in the present moment non-reactively, to be right here, right now, um, not allowing your mind to wander to its unintended uh, space. And so how, how does this work essentially in the setting of chronic pain? Sure, well, so, Chronic pain is a really a multimodal problem. And so to assuage chronic pain, you're going to really need a multimodal solution. I don't think there is a silver bullet out there. Um, and, and there certainly isn't a cure. Um, so mindfulness is unique because it reduces pain by changing one's relationship with the appraisal of that pain the catastrophizing, the rumination, the fear from movement, those types of conditioning processes, the sedentary lifestyle, the quality of life reductions, all of those can actually be manipulated, can be modulated through the practice. And the way that that's done is by simply appraising the, the noxious experience of pain and to let it go by returning your attention back to the breath. And what we see is when, and, and so the way they let it go is not, not judging themselves, not judging the experience. And over time, the self-regulatory facility faculty um, are heightened to where an individual can simply look at the pain, feel it as pain, but it won't bother them as much. 
And it doesn't happen miraculously. It requires effort. It requires discipline, just like going to the gym to work out a bicep. You know, there is this use it or lose it mentality. But the biggest, one of the biggest misnomers in, in modern medicine is the, or, or traditional medicine, I guess, is the fact that just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Well, now using modern technology, we can actually see some profound changes in the brain, the body, and, and experience and behavior, right, through this practice. Um, so what, in a nutshell, um, what we're really seeing is that the intensity of the pain kind of stays the same, but pain unpleasantness, pain bothersome, disability dramatically goes down. So there's this disentanglement, if you will, from the sensory and the affective components of, this, of the pain experience. Yeah, that's, that's great. You know, and, and interestingly, you know, we see, we see that type of um, significant change, you know, in my world, in the neurosurgical world with things like, um, you know, surgical manipulations for, for example, end-of-life cancer-related pain um, in the cingulate, um, uh, in the cingulate cortex, the anterior cingulate cortex for things like cingulotomy, um, being able to dissociate those different components of pain. Um, so, you know, this is this is clearly, you know, you alluded to the fact that this is not a quick fix. What really does it take from a patient's perspective, really, and a practitioner's perspective, um, to get this to the point where it can actually become therapeutic? Ah, great question. We have um, a study that is, um, we just completed, we're still analyzing it. So it's very preliminary. Um, but we basically uh, perform, we recruited radiculopathy patients, and we performed the straight leg race test to evoke their sciatic pain. Uh, we did a lot of mechanistic stuff like injected them with naloxone and saline and did it, but that's besides the point um after 60 minutes of training really i'm pretty sure they were probably able to do this after 20 minutes of training but after 60 minutes of practice just practice um, when we evoked their pain they were able to immediately directly reduce that pain so you don't need to be a monk um, as far as um, the long-term benefits that's where if you keep practicing, right, in theory, and what we're seeing from neuroimaging um, data is that the state of meditation starts to develop more into a temperament, more into a trait. The individual becomes more resilient, right? So the chronification of pain also becomes attenuated as a function of that, right? So at, you can use it immediately to, if you aggravate yourself bending over, tying your shoe, go ahead and do a practice and that will assuage the experience, which will, is also will produce a snowball effect, just like the other way around where you're not doing something to regulate your experience, you continuously aggravate the injury and over time, it gets worse and worse and worse and then develops into chronic pain. It can go both ways. So I think it can be immediately efficacious, but for long-term results, you really should keep going keep practicing. Great. So, so let's say we have um, a clinician, you know, listening to this podcast who, you know, says that's wonderful. How do I, you know, how do I sign up my patients? How, you know, what kind of resources are out there or how would you recommend they would proceed in considering to adding this type of, of therapy to, to a patient's um, regimen? Yeah, so that's a great question. There are tons of resources online 
Um, and there's tons of resources that are, um, I would recommend through UCSD. Um, so for instance, the Institute for Empathy and Compassion in collaboration with the Center for Mindfulness are offering free live meditation trainings every, every single day. But that's a little bit for more live experimentation, if you will. It really is just a recipe, five steps that you would receive. And so it could be as easy as an audio recording that you can download from the Center for Mindfulness. It could easily be a, a five steps that you provide the patient. Sit comfortably, focus on the changing sensations of your breathing with your eyes closed. When you notice your mind drifting off, acknowledge that distracting thought, feeling, or emotion for whatever it is. Don't judge it, don't judge the experience. Come back to the breath and start over. And you will get distracted on every single inhale and every single exhale, and that's okay. That's how you strengthen the mind to regulate the emotions. So it's really, that's what we're seeing from our data over and over and over is that we normally have about a 99% response rate for mindfulness and pain. It's really dramatic. I would say that of all the health outcomes out there um, that mindfulness is efficacious for, pain would be, pain and anxiety would probably be the, the most um, immediate and direct benefits. Um, and it doesn't take uh, much. At once you accept the fact that you're going to struggle with it a little bit at first, once you get past that, it should you should immediately start feeling better. And I would highly recommend it for our physicians, as you can see the work that we're doing together, uh, where we're administering mindfulness to awake craniotomy patients during the middle of neurosurgery. And our own neurosurgeons are now seeing the benefits of being able to complete the surgery because their patient's arms aren't flailing and they're not um, complaining of pain and anxiety. Um, you know, so it's a really exciting time to see what capacity we can integrate these self-regulatory practices to help aid, you know, um, resilience development and emotion regulation. Yeah, and we've certainly seen um, some great results in those craniotomy patients. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so kind of taking it back to you know some of your work um, with 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 cannabis and collaboration with Dr. Wallace. Do you see an overlap in some of the mechanism of actions of these two types of therapeutic modalities? Yeah. So in theory, we will hopefully. Uh, well, not hopefully. <laughs> Where uh, the theory is that they're both engaging mechanisms supporting disassociation between the sensory and the self, right? When you when the self-reference of the sensory experience is tagged, when it's magnified, pain is worse, it's exacerbated. We, we, these are, this is pain catastrophizing in the pain field, right? The magnification, the, the, the rumination, um, the attention. The, the noxious input is so salient that all the attention is allocated there and it becomes this catastrophic event. I think based on some of the preliminary evidence that mindfulness and other psychedelics like cannabis and psilocybin are analgesic because they um, can facilitate an experience that separates the, this aberrant input and the self-referential appraisal of said input in a positive way, in a more neutral way possibly. But stay tuned. We're still collecting data. We're really excited to find out the results. Well, yeah, and I have a comment on that because I understand that this is dose related and, and, and dose related in that you can go from the positive effects to actually negative effects and maybe an interfering 
with the mindfulness mechanism. And the example of that is you look at THC, one or two milligrams is analgesic and calming. You get four or five milligrams improved sleep, 10 milligrams paranoia, agitation, 20 milligrams psychosis. And so you can see how if you go above the therapeutic uh, dose, you're gonna have too many negative effects. A worsening pain, inability to focus using mindfulness. So when we talk about this, we're talking about low doses of THC. Absolutely. So to wrap things up here, you know, where where do you um, both see the future here? Um, where where are things headed and in integrating, you know, in a more robust fashion these types of therapies into clinical practice? So as far as cannabis goes, it, it's still complicated as it, being a scheduled two drug. It's going to be very difficult to, to really, I mean, it'll vary from state to state because states are gonna have different laws. Uh, the uh, house just passed the bill to, to reschedule it, to schedule from schedule, when I say schedule two, I mean schedule one. Reschedule, reschedule it from schedule one to schedule two. It's never gonna pass in the Senate at this time. And so here we're still left with dealing with a scheduled one drug uh, uh, and, and that has very variability from state to state and it's gonna be difficult. We can do a lot here in California, but then you go to some of the other states with high restrictions and, and, and it's the opposite. That, um, I think we've learned a lot about dosing. I think we need to educate healthcare providers more on how to dose it. And then they can try to work within their states with what access they have and the products they have and just work with that. Great. Yeah, I, I uh, just to piggyback off of that, I think that we're in a really exciting time right now in pain, in pain research. Um, my, and, and you know, UC San Diego has been a really uh, wonderful place to collaborate with so many different people from a multidisciplinary perspective. And I feel like, you know, the overarching goal would be able to prescribe um, different therapies that are targeted for explicit individuals suffering from chronic pain, from specific, um, from tailoring these therapies to different types of pain conditions, where we would integrate mindfulness with cannabis, with more usual care, physical exercise. And we will know based on the data or the information that the patients provide us how to tailor these therapies in a, in a specialized precision, precision way where you consider the whole individual to treat their pain as opposed to just their symptoms. And I think that with some of the new therapies coming out, some of these exciting uh, non-susceptic non specific therapies emerging, that this is a, a really exciting time to, to, to kind of move the needle a place where we can provide you to really alleviate suffering for the whole person um, as opposed to just treating the, what's, you know, the, the actual pain. Absolutely. I think this is, a, you know, agree completely. This is a really exciting time uh, for these types of therapies. And, uh, um, and thank you both so much for your dedication to this field and your contribution to you know the rigorous research surrounding it that will really make it continue to make it become such a, a useful part of the therapeutic regimen. 
So uh, I'd like to wrap up by thanking all of our listeners, um, as well as the Congress of Neurological Surgeons and the North American Neuromodulation Society for this joint collaboration. Dr. Wallace, Dr. Zaydan, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss uh, these alternative therapies with me this morning. Uh, and, uh, and we certainly look forward to continuing to expand um, on some of these important topics in our upcoming uh, webinar covering the general topic of the non-surgical management of pain. Thank you all.